These are the Greek Myth Files, a close look into the Greek mythical story world, its gods, its heroes, and its monstrous others. Each episode features a story or broader topic that we dig into, analyze, and try to explain in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the Classics Program at the University of New Hampshire and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. Welcome to another episode of the Greek Myth Files. This is our last installment for Season 3, which has explored some myths set in the East. Today's episode, however, will be set in Greece, but will focus on and explore two central tensions, Greeks versus barbarians and men versus women. The central character will be Medea, who, as we have learned, was instrumental in helping Jason complete the quest for the Golden Fleece. Over the last several episodes, we focused on Apollonius of Rhodes' mini-epic poem, The Argonautica, or Argonaut Adventure, which ended with the Argonauts' eventual return to Jason's homeland in Iolcus. Today's episode will take as its central text an amazing tragedy by the playwright Euripides, entitled Medea after its central character. It is one of the most famous and important plays that we have from antiquity, and of all the stories told by the playwrights in the 5th century BCE, it is the one that most influenced the way that a mythological figure was regarded. Euripides, who wrote tragedies based on myth, was a few centuries earlier than Apollonius, and his portrayal of Medea fundamentally changed the myth forever. There is a lot to talk about in this play, and we'll only scratch the surface. Suffice it to say, it's definitely worth a couple hours of your time to read the whole play. Listeners who want to have more background on Euripides and Athenian tragedy in general are invited to listen to our special edition on the Hecuba. First, let us, well, set the stage by allowing Euripides' own words to frame the story at the beginning of the play. The first character that we see when the tragedy opens is Medea's nurse. And I don't mean nurse in the medical sense, but it's the word used in Greek for a female attendant. At any rate, Medea's nurse gives the background to the audience right at the beginning. How I wish that the ship Argo had never winged its way through the gray clashing rocks to the land of the Colchians. How I wish the pines had never been honed down in the glens of Mount Pelion to put oars in the hands of the heroes who went to fetch for Peleas the golden fleece. Then Medea, my mistress, would not have sailed to the towers of Yalkis, her heart pierced with love for Jason. She would not have convinced the daughters of Peleas to murder their father, and she would not be dwelling here in Corinth with her husband, and children. But now, Jason has betrayed his own children and my mistress to sleep beside a royal bride, the daughter of Creon who rules this land, while Medea, luckless Medea, in her desolation invokes the promises he made, appeals to the pledges in which she put her deepest trust and calls heaven to witness the sorry payback she got from Jason. As is typical for Euripides, he is careful to give the background of the story, so we get a fast recap of the events that we've been discussing over the past several episodes, setting the stage for the events of the play itself, which take place over a single day as Greek tragedy demands. But it's worth emphasizing here some crucial points that underlie the play. 
First, Medea is a foreigner, a barbaros in Greek. The original meaning of this word was simply a non-Greek speaker, but the word evolved to mean non-Greek in the sense of non-cultured or non-civilized or strange. We'll get back to that later, but another key point is that Medea gave up any connection to her homeland back in Colchis. Listeners will remember that she alienated her father Aetes by helping the foreigner get the Golden Fleece, and she, depending on the version, either instigated or herself committed the murder of her brother Absyrtus. Later, her engineering the death of King Peleos in Iolcus meant that she literally had nowhere to turn. Without Jason, she would be an outcast, a refugee. A third point to make is that Medea is a woman. Without getting too deep into the issue of gender expectations and roles in ancient Greece, it's enough to say here that women were not regarded as equals and did not have much independence or self-determination at all. In other words, women's roles, with some exceptions, tended to be private and based solely in the household. Giving birth, raising children, and weaving were the central aspects of their life. Outside of that, they relied entirely on males, either their father or after marriage, their husbands for most everything else. So Medea depends on Jason not only because she's a foreigner and a refugee, but because she is a woman too. So to sum up, when Jason decides to leave Medea to marry the king's daughter, Medea's choices are, well, limited. If she does not accept Jason's decision and live in Corinth alone, what else could she do? She had nowhere to go and nowhere to turn. But Medea's heroic nature won't allow her to accept his decision. And this is the central backdrop for the rest of the play. Euripides' play develops quickly. After the nurse delivers her opening speech, Medea's children return with their own caretaker, who had learned from the ancient version of a water cooler that because Medea had not taken the news calmly and took to threatening the lives of King Creon and his daughter, Creon had decreed that Medea must leave Corinth. The nurse confirms that Medea has been brooding in anger, casting angry threats and looks at everyone, including her own children. Soon the chorus of Corinthian women enter, who are sympathetic to Medea's woes, at which point Medea emerges from inside and addresses them. Her speech, which dwells on the condition of women, is very powerful. It's all over, friends. I would gladly die. Life has lost all its sweetness. The man who was everything to me has turned out to be the basest of men. And he knows it. Of all the creatures that feel and think, we women are the unhappiest species. In the first place, we must pay a great dowry to a husband who will be a tyrant of our bodies. Second, we don't know if we'll get a good man or a bad one. For separations bring disgrace on the woman, and it is not possible to renounce one's husband. Then, landed among strange habits and regulations unheard of in her own home, 
A woman needs second sight to know how best to handle her bedmate. And if, if we manage this well and have a husband who does not dread our company, ours is a life to be envied. Otherwise, one is better off dead. They say that we have a safe life at home, whereas the men must go to war? <laughs> Nonsense! I had rather fight three battles than bear one child. Medea continues, reminding the Corinthian women that she is homeless with no place to go, and asks if she can come up with a just revenge for Jason's wrongs against her, that they remain silent in her support. Thinking that the revenge would be just and righteous, the chorus of Corinthian women assent to her request not to inform Jason or anyone else of the plan that she concocted for revenge. At that very moment, Creon bursts onto the scene to deliver the news to Medea himself. She must be gone by sundown. No delay at all. Why? Medea asks. Well, Creon replies in brutal honesty. I am afraid of you. No need to hide behind a cloak of words. I'm afraid you'll hurt my child. My fear is justified. You are by nature shrewd and know many forms of punishment, and you are stung by the loss of your husband's love. I've heard of your threats to injure the groom and bride, and me, the father of the bride. So before anything happens to me, I must take precautions. The word for shrewd in Greek is sophos, which can range in meaning from wise, clever, subtle, and ingenious. Of course, Creon knows Medea's past and her clever ways with plants, drugs, spells, and the like. He's worried that her anger, which she's expressed in no uncertain terms, will devolve into some horrific final act. She's got a particular set of skills, skills she has acquired over a very long career, skills that make her a nightmare for people like Creon and his kin. In a turnabout, Medea uses her skills not to harm Creon on the spot, but to convince him that she needs just a bit more time, one day, to make arrangements, especially for her children. Please, she says, you have children too, so surely you'll understand. Reluctantly and tragically, Creon gives her the rest of the day to prepare for her departure. After Creon leaves, Medea announces to the chorus of the Corinthian women, Creon's foolishly given me a day, one day, in which I shall make corpses of three of my enemies, the father, the daughter, and my own husband. How exactly she will do this, she does not know, but her intentions are clear. She will gain revenge on her enemies. Greek tragedies usually feature a central debate between two characters that frames the action of the play, the central message in other words. In the Medea, this debate, formerly called an agon or contest, occurs between Jason and Medea, the couple. When Jason arrives, he expresses his displeasure that Medea could not just keep quiet. If only she had, she could have stayed in the land and reaped the benefits of Jason's new position as the king's son-in-law. He would have made sure she wanted nothing. 
but no, she had to rant and rave, and so got kicked out of the land. Still, Jason says he has come to make sure that Medea and the children would not lack for anything, money, or food when they went into exile. This overture by Jason leads Medea to lash out at her rotten, cowardly ex-husband. Had he forgotten what she had done for him? I saved your life. As all know who embarked on the Argo, when you were sent to master with the yoke the fire-breathing bulls and to sow with dragon's teeth that field of death, the dragon, too, with wreathed coils that kept safe watch over the golden fleece and never slept, I slew it and raised for you the light of life again. Then, forsaking my father and my own dear ones, I came to Yalkis, where Peleus reigned, came with you more than fond and less than wise. On Peleus, too, I brought death, the most painful death there is at the hands of his own children. So, I have removed every danger from your path. And, after all those benefits at my hands, you, basest of men, you have betrayed me and made a new marriage. Although I bore you children. This is Medea's argument. I saved you, and by doing so, I gave up my family and any other sort of security a woman has in this world. And you swore oaths to me. And now you've gone on to marry another woman. Jason, in turn, makes an argument that pits Greece as a superior land to others, including Colchis. One that somehow seems arrogant and sexist at the exact same time. Well, since you're making a mountain out of the favors you have done me, I'll tell you what I think. If you helped me in some way or other, it's all well and good. But as I will show in the matter of my rescue, you got more than you gave. In the first place, you have your home in Greece instead of a barbarian land. You have learned the blessings of law and justice instead of the caprice of the strong. And all of the Greeks have realized your wisdom, and you have won great fame. If you had been living on the edges of the earth, nobody would have ever heard of you. May I have neither gold in my house nor skill to sing a sweeter song than Orpheus if my fortune is to be hid from the eyes of humankind. Then there remains my wedding with the princess, which you have cast in my teeth. In addition to other things, what I wanted first and foremost was a good home where we would lack for nothing. Poor men, of course, are shunned and avoided by all their friends. Secondly, I wanted to bring up the children in a style worthy of my house, and begetting other children to be brothers to the children born of you, bring them all together and unite the families. You women have actually come to believe that lucky in love, lucky in all things. But if some mischance befalls that love, you think the best situations are the most loathsome. There should have been some other way for men to beget their children, dispensing with the assistance of women. Then, oh, then there would be no trouble in this world.
In the interest of time, we're going to fast forward just a bit. To summarize, after Jason leaves, Medea is visited by the king of Athens named Aegeus, who happens to be passing by Corinth on another task. There, Medea cleverly manipulates him into thinking she's been wronged, and eventually Medea convinces the king to swear to take her in to Athens no matter what. He agrees. Then Medea enacts her plan. She reconciles with Jason. It's a masterful scene where she manipulates him. After all, she says, she's just a woman and couldn't control herself earlier. You know how we are, she says. I was just angry before. Then Medea asks Jason if she can send his new bride gifts, a beautiful robe and a golden crown, a way to apologize for her earlier impulsive self. He consents, and Medea sends her young, innocent children with Jason to deliver her evil gifts to win over the princess. Normally, action that takes place offstage is reported in what is called a messenger speech, especially if the events are violent or bloody. Here, the messenger, a slave of the king's household, comes on stage and reports his eyewitness account. Jason brought the kids in and asked his new wife to forgive her. At first, the king's daughter turns away in disgust, but then she sees the gifts. A fair warning here, this is a long and detailed passage, and what we're about to report is gruesome and may not be appropriate for younger children. Then, when she saw the golden gifts, she couldn't resist, and she promised her husband whatever he asked for, and they started to depart. But before Jason and the children had even walked very far from the house, the princess had picked up the gown and wore it. Then she put the golden crown onto her blonde head, walked over to the shining mirror to fix her hair, and smiled at the lifeless image she saw in it. After that, she got up delirious with joy and went through all the rooms with her white little feet, every now and then, standing on her toes, turning to see her body from all sides. Suddenly, though, the whole scene changed. It became awful, horrible to see. First, the princess changed color. She, she moved back, all shaken with terror, and she only just managed to get to her bed without falling down. When froth rose up into her beautiful mouth, and then, then her skin was flushed dry of all its blood. Her eyes began to roll back upward. The golden crown suddenly spewed forth a strange flame around her head, burning it, devouring it, and the fine gown. The two gifts your children gave her began to eat away at the tender white flesh of the poor girl. She jumped out of her throne and ran like a bundle of fire, shaking her head, her hair, shaking it this way and that, struggling to rip the crown off her poor head. But the crown stayed there, immovable. And as she shook her head, the burning blaze grew doubly fierce. Eventually, unable to fight the evil attack anymore, she fell to the ground. A bundle of horrible death. Only the woman who gave birth to her could recognize her. And us, what could we have done? None of us could touch or approach her dead body. We saw what horror fate had wrought upon her. Then her father entered the room unaware of what had happened. He came in and saw his daughter on the ground, and he immediately fell upon her body. He screamed, holding her tightly in his arms, kissed her with tears in his eyes, and said, My sweet darling, my sweet darling daughter, what terrible God was it that has given you such an awful death? Which awful God took you from me? Me, 
Me who has one foot in the grave. Oh, how I'd love to have died with you, my sweet, sweet daughter. Then, when the poor old man had quieted his grief a little and tried to stand up, he saw that his weak old body was stuck to his daughter's gown like an ivy sticks onto the branches of a Daphne bush. He began a most fearsome battle. He tried to stand up onto his weak legs, but his daughter's corpse held him down. Her body was stuck to his, and as he charged at freeing his leg, the old man's flesh broke away from its very bones. Shortly, the ill-fated man gave up the fight, and his soul left him. Now they're lying there, two corpses, a father and a daughter, side by side, a most hideous death, a death worthy of the deepest grief. The play now has taken a decisive turn and seems almost complete. Medea has successfully killed the princess and her father, King Creon, using her clever devices and poison. Now, the audience might expect one last act, Medea taking revenge on her husband, Jason. That was, after all, what Medea proclaimed she would do after Creon had foolishly given her another day in the city. But after the messenger finished his speech, Medea reveals her new plan. She will take up a sword and kill her own children. The announcement is sudden, unexpected, and without delay, she takes the children inside the house. The chorus of Corinthian women, up until now in support of Medea's situation and plans, is horrified, aghast. Again, horrible acts are not shown on stage, so the audience has to listen to the children's pleas as Medea kills one and then the other. It is a shocking development, swift and brutal. What would an audience have thought of this? Well, we can never be entirely sure since we do not have any contemporary reports from the 5th century to help us out. But everything we know about the development of the Medea myth suggests this. Before Euripides' play, she did not kill her own kids. And if that's right, then the audience would not have been expecting this momentous change in the myth. And I think Euripides was preparing the audience not to expect it. In fact, Medea's statement early on that she would produce three corpses, father, daughter, and Jason, was a sleight of hand to make Medea's final act in Corinth so frightening and shocking. I can't help but to think that this shock to the senses is why Euripides did not take home first prize for a series of plays, but third out of three. But the profound impact of Euripides' portrayal fundamentally gave Medea that reputation, the killer of her own children. And no work of art or play thereafter could or did ignore that aspect of her life. Medea became a child killer. You might be wondering what happened next. Well, in the play, Jason comes on stage for the third and final time and learns that Medea has done the unthinkable. Wouldn't the loss of her children also cause Medea unbearable pain? Of course, she says, but the pain was worth making Jason suffer. In fact, at the very end, Jason is now very much in the same position Medea was in. No wife, no homeland, no hope. A later tradition tells us that Jason, despondent, went to live along with the beached Argo. One night, as Jason slept underneath, the rotting prow broke off and killed him, 
an ignominious end to a once bright star, a hero. As for Medea, she emerges from the house in a chariot given to her by her grandfather Helios, the sun god. Greek stagecraft often employed a sort of crane for special effects, and she, Medea, flies off to join King Aegis in Athens. But we'll save what happens there for a future episode. There is so much more to dive into with this play, but we'll leave listeners to go and read the play and think about the complexities and moral complications within for themselves. Is Jason's position defensible? Did Medea act in her best interest? Does Medea's actions reinforce the notion of Greek versus the other barbaroi barbarians? What does it say that Medea gets away scot-free? And what about the act of killing one's children? Is that ever defensible? This last question brings me to one last point that is really important. Medea's actions, while morally reprehensible to us, are in fact heroic. Now, I don't mean that in the modern conception of hero, but in the sense of an ancient epic hero. Basically, the motivations for her actions and the actions themselves are perfectly aligned with the way male heroes respond to similar situations. Medea is less concerned with losing her lover than the fact that Jason dishonored her and treated her unjustly. So it's not jealousy, but a lack of respect and dignity. When Medea debates how she will kill the king and princess, she opts for the method poison so that she would not be caught red-handed with, say, a sword, resulting in everyone laughing at her and mocking her. Avoiding ridicule and mockery is a key concern for the mythical hero. Finally, since the credo of the heroic code is to harm one's enemies while protecting one's own, once Medea becomes hateful to Medea, her enemy, her form of revenge lines up right with those, say, found in the Iliad. Well, that's it for another episode of the Greek Myth Files. And with it, we've wrapped up the final episode for season Next season will feature a series of episodes on mythical monsters, starting with an interview with an expert on monsters and monstrosity, and continuing with some discussions of individual monsters like the giants and the minotaur. Great thanks go to our students, as always, who have contributed greatly to the show. First, our sound engineer is Samantha Kutzia, and our voice actors are Julia Summer and AJ O'Neill. Our theme music is by the outstanding saxophonist Jared Sims, that's Sims with one M. You should buy and listen to his music. As usual, we have a few visual aids on our website, including an ancient face showing Medea escaping on a chariot drawn by serpents, and a wall painting from Pompeii that depicts Medea debating whether or not to kill her children. But that's it for now. These have been the Greek Myth Files, signing out for just a little while. See you next time.